how to protect your IP, patents, and going door-to-door. This is the Early Days Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Early Days Podcast, the show about the hustle, the excitement, the doubts, the success, the failures, the ups and downs of building a business from scratch. My name is Marin and with my co-founder Julian, we interview fellow entrepreneurs about their experience of starting businesses. As we're building our own apparel company and documenting the early days, we wanted to go behind the scenes with other entrepreneurs and find out what their early days, weeks, months and years were like. This episode is part two of our conversation with Shen and David from C2P Strain. We really hit it off the first time and found a lot of common ground. So we decided to invite them again and continue the discussion around starting a business. On this show, we went deeper into the specifics around how they started, mainly talking about the way they approach patents, how other entrepreneurs can take advantage of IP protection systems, and how to create initial demand and distribution channels for your product. Make sure you check out their business online, their c2pstrain.com, or say hi on Facebook by looking up the C2P Strain page. Now, without further ado, enjoy our conversation with Shane and David from C2P Strain. Yeah, it's yeah. always a challenge, right? To find your market in the very beginning. Man, it sure is. That's uh, that is big, and it's it's a lot of research that you have to do right up front before you can. It's so easy to get super excited about your product and want to jump right into selling it, but we had to several times go back and do the research every time before we wanted to come up with a new product or try and even sell to a new market. It's it's a lot of the background work that goes into it before you can be successful. Did before you launched the product, did you actually get also do did the research for shipping and logistics, or you did the product and then once you had to face this challenge of shipping, then you kind of researched and investigated that? So Dave and I actually did a product about what two years ago that was a it was a hunting product. It was called the Hula Hut. And it was a it was a duck hunting blind. So hunters would get in this big. uh, It was about what a four foot by four foot uh, cube that was made by it was surrounded by rebar. It had four rebar posts and then you covered it with a grass skirt of uh, palm leaves so that you could get in there with your gun. And when the ducks came, they would you know, you could pop out and and shoot them and go hunting. And when we made that product, we got the entire way done with it. You know, one of our buddies actually kind of did the most of the design. But when we were going to figure out the shipping, it was so big and so heavy that just shipping one of them was, I think it was 300. Yeah, yeah. The, we were selling the product for 300 bucks, and then we realized the shipping was going to be 300. And then we realized that our hopes and dreams kind of, <laughs> kind of vanished. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So we, we did so much work to get this product up and ready to go. We made promotional videos, and we were super excited about it. And then we were like, oh, well, we should probably check what shipping is. And then <laughs> there was no way to get it to ship below 200 to 300 dollars and it just yeah it was a big issue so so we haven't made that mistake again we as soon as we got our one of our first prototypes we weighed it measured it and then we just estimated from that measurement you know how many we could fit in this box or this box or this box and how much it would weigh 
And we just went to like UPS, FedEx, post office, and just got all kind of quotes. And it did fit within our business model. Um, so that's what we ended up doing before we hit the mass manufacturing, just to make sure we wouldn't hit that, uh, <laughs> have that happen again. That was pretty bad. That was bad. That was really bad. No, it seems that there are a lot of lessons that uh, like come people like us get to learn while starting doing and doing something for the first time. It's funny. We were just talking about this with Julian uh, about some ideas of uh, how how we approach things when we started with Dulo two years ago, almost like from the idea stage to actually prototyping and then production to, and how we, how many things we learned that we can now implement in a different way. That's much more efficient and much smarter as well. Yeah, yeah totally. There's so much on the job training. It seems like when you're doing things like this, that you do, you learn so much. And that's, that's one of the things Dave and I, we're going to talk to you guys about this time is how many resources are available for entrepreneurs. And I don't know if it's like that where you guys are. Did you guys have access to an entrepreneur center or even some local colleges around here offer assistance and even classes and lessons for young entrepreneurs? Do you guys have that there? Uh, not in that format. Um... I guess the closest thing will be kind of going to meetups and just speaking to other people. But for some reason, the context is always slightly different. And even though it's slightly different, that kind of changes the whole process. That's, I think, the interesting questions. Even though you know that resources are out there and uh, it's either us documenting the story for somebody else to, to make use of, of uh, some of the lessons we've learned or you go to the local chamber of commerce and talk to other entrepreneurs there or you go to school to learn that. Um, do you really go to that uh, when you go for the first time for your first venture? Uh, because I think in our case, at least, we probably have read a lot, have heard a lot about, watched a lot of content, consumed a lot of content about entrepreneurship and startups. But I think when it comes to the specifics, everybody is really ignorant. And I wonder how it was for you guys. Did you, for the very first thing that you did, not, not necessarily C2P strain, but the very, very first thing that you did, um, did you really... I mean, I'm pretty sure you had access to resources and you had some uh, background in your heads as well, some knowledge, but um, did you make a lot of mistakes that you learned from which helped you to eventually uh, do a better job with the next product that you came up with? Definitely. And I think you're exactly right when you talk about the specifics of the business, because we did, we seeked out all these uh, entrepreneur centers and classes and venture capitalist groups. And Dave and I went to them for a good long while. We actually still go to them and they provide a lot of good things. There's a lot of good speakers that stand up and talk about their businesses and their successes, their failures and what they've learned. But the problem is that there are so many different kinds of business and ways to succeed that there's no way you can learn everything about the business that you're trying to start from somebody. If, if you're trying to start a, a, a uh, ice cream shop, you're going to be able to learn some lessons from somebody who makes uh, lasers for the military. But you know, some of the same things will apply, but you're really not going to get the down and dirty aspects of what it is that you're trying to do. And I think we, I think, it, was that your experience too, Dave? 
Um, so I think one important lesson is planting seeds takes a while to come to fruition. And the reason why that's important is because you go to meetings, you gain knowledge, you, you know, you work hard and everything, but you're not going to see a result right away. And what we did when we first got out of college, we actually just completely immersed ourselves in the entrepreneurship community. And we went to these different meetings, different centers and things like that. And we absolutely did not see an immediate impact. Of course. I mean, it, you know, we reaped a lot of benefits about two to three years later. And all of a sudden, a ton of things started happening. You know, people in, in the region that we used to live in, they started contacting us, looking up to us. We got funded by the Entrepreneur Center that was in the area where we used to live. Uh, so a lot of seeds started blossoming about two years after we were in very involved with all these meetings. And so I think that's kind of an important lesson because there needs to be a balance between all the work you're doing and also the networking, things like that. I mean, you can't go full bore networking, but you can't go full bore just work. And that's kind of one of the balances that's pretty tough because you can put your head down as an entrepreneur and work a ton. But I think it's important to work smarter sometimes rather than just work harder. So for us, it was a good balance between those two. Actually, at the beginning, it was almost 100% us just networking because we didn't know what the heck we were doing at 20, 21 years old. We were thought just, we did. yeah, yeah, Shane definitely thought he did, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, you know, we networked a lot and it was a great learning experience. And sometimes we, we didn't really know what the benefits were, but they really paid off big uh, a couple years later. So that was, that was pretty cool. Were you at one point or at any point in time um, like concerned that you might share too much or somebody might run off with your idea? Yeah, I think at the beginning we were concerned about that, especially so we had four members of our team at one point and it seemed like we had a decent split of two of us would be like, well, we got to share our information about the product to get people excited about it. And the other two were like, no, we have to talk to our lawyers. We have to get this protected. We have to make sure that we don't share anything. And we were kind of at the two extremes, I think. And I think it was Dave who eventually said that he listened to, it might've been a podcast or maybe it was a video from a successful entrepreneur. And he said, you have to assume that your first 10 good ideas are going to be stolen. And I think that that covers two things is one, you have to be aware that prote protection for your ideas exists and you should seek it out as much as you can. But I think it also says you can't lock your idea in a closet and not share it with anybody because that's, that's not going to get you anywhere. So we, we did try to cover both bases. We found a lawyer that we liked in in our area and we talked to we actually talked to several and we found one that was great with patents and working with small businesses and we've been using him for the past three years i think and we have gotten provisional patents how many how many do we have do we have three provisional patents on things now i think, we I do. think we've done four including yeah. buzzware coming soon oh yeah buzzware that's right we'll talk about that another time <laughs> um but yeah uh, he's 
Yeah, so it was, uh, I mean, it's it's stuff that you don't like to have to do is getting patents and, and doing the legal process. But unfortunately, it's something that if you want to protect yourself as much as you possibly can, and you know, being a small business, if somebody tries to take you to court, it's it's going to be tough for you to fight it because if, mm-hmm. if somebody big comes after you, you're not going to be able to, they're just going to throw money at you until you don't have anything left, but you have yeah. to try. I feel like. Yeah. And one of the, one of the things that we did at the beginning was we were definitely, I think way too conservative with sharing our information. I think that you definitely have to share your information to, you know, get it, get it out there and get feedback and things like that. Of course, you know, if you invent, you know, a new rocket, you don't want to go to to Tesla or SpaceX or whatever and, you know, give them your plans or something. That wouldn't that wouldn't be great. But for us, we were way too conservative. I also think we didn't know that I don't know how your guys intellectual property works over there in Europe, but here in the US, we're able to to do a few things. You know, we have like non-disclosure non-disclosure agreements and provisional patents, which is essentially an inventor's patent. And it's pretty cheap. You can file one for like 300 bucks. And if you actually get a full patent within 12 months of filing that, you actually get the protection from the filing of that original inventor's provisional patent. So there are some things, you know, we we thought that it was black and white. Like, hey, we don't have a full patent, so we can't share any information, which is definitely not true. I mean you can share pretty much all your information. If you have a provisional patent, get some NDAs. And then the other thing is too, if you're a a one big thing is getting feedback because ideas seem like they're a dime a dozen until you get feedback from the consumer. And when you think about most people, I mean, most people are lazy. Most people are not going to, like if you go to a hundred, what we used to do is we would, you know, stalk people at the mall and, and ask them about our product. They'd be like, Hey, do you, do you pour paint out of your one gallon paint can? How does that work? And, you know, do you strain your paint? Things like that. I mean, you go to hundred people at the mall, none of those people, I mean, the chances that one of those people are going to literally remember your idea and go build it themselves are so small. I mean, most people are very lazy. So I don't know. It, it just comes with experience. I think that balance, you have to it, find it, a good balance. It just comes with experience, but you definitely can't be afraid to share your idea Um, but you, there are, you need to look up the intellectual property protection methods because there are very easy things you can do for not too much money that can protect you a lot. So, yeah. Uh, to follow up on that, let's say, how are you guys thinking about branding? For example, let's say, uh, you've been in business for a few years, then another company comes along with a similar product Then, in theory. Uh, we could say that the brand would be kind of the only differentiator and kind of that would be the real protection, I guess, uh, when it comes to decision-making to buy uh, to uh, whether to buy your product or the, the competitions. Are you guys thinking about that? Um, yeah, how are, you, how are you thinking about that? We're definitely thinking about it because our product is something that uh, is probably threatened by that. There could be knockoffs in the future if it got popular enough. But if it got popular enough, we would hope that our brand and our name would be stuck in people's minds enough to say C2P is the first strainer company that did this. And I trust their product and I trust that they have a a quality, uh, a quality product. And 
we did we did pay some some money for designers to get a quality logo made, and we have trademarked our um, our name and our our tagline. So we've done some. Well, well, tell them what the tagline is. Oh right, C two P strain easily strained from can to pan. That is smooth. Right. Smooth um, tagline. <laughs> but yeah, we uh, we did some, a little bit of background for protection on that, and we we hope that we can flood the market enough. If we can get in enough paint stores and get painters to recognize our product as C two P strain, then hopefully when a competitor comes. Uh, and tries to undercut us, which probably will happen eventually. We hope that, you know, not only have we proven ourselves as a quality product in the market and gained dedicated um, customers, but we hope that we have built relationships with the store owners and the uh, distributors that we work with that say, we trust these guys. We know they deliver on time. We know they're good people and uh, they'll continue to, to use our product. So how do you think about becoming that top of mind product um, uh, currently and uh, especially in the future when you guys become more popular and probably there's another player who, who is a knockoff of you? Yes. Yeah, so in my mind, um, one of the big things that we've had to try to do is make some short-term, mid-term and long-term goals for this product. And there are a lot of things that we've talked about, especially mid-term, long-term but in my mind, one of the a great avenue is we are currently getting into a lot of hardware stores. So that's our short term goal is let's let's do this as much as we can because it's working right now. What we want to do eventually midterm goal is once we get into a couple hundred stores, we want to start getting more on the social media marketing, hire a professional marketer to do this full time. Uh, you know, email campaigns, all this stuff, because then that's going to be building our brand and customer relationships uh, for business to consumer transactions rather than business to business, which is what we're doing right now. Long term goals. We have a lot of internal capabilities, including a lot of engineering design, things like that. We have a lot of other products in the paint industry that we want to expand to, including uh, other types of strainers. So, for example, we can use different sized meshes to strain various chemicals. We can we can do different sized containers, like the five gallon cans, the pint size. And then on top of that, we have, from all of our interactions with store owners and painters, we have a lot of other suggestions of what is needed in the industry. And we're going to just expand to all of those. So that's some of our long-term goals. So when you think about it long-term, you know, if everything works out, which hopefully it will, uh, Long-term, we'll have multiple products under a similar branding structure, uh, all designed by us, and we will have built a large following on social media and also just great relationships with painters and store owners. So that's kind of the way that we see it going. Uh, we're always going to be one step ahead of the curve because, you know, let's say we make someone else makes a knockoff of the one-gallon strainer. Well, first of all, we, you know, we got our brand in place and we're great customer relationships, but we're already on to the next product. And while we're selling our current one, we're going to have more products that are going to be made in the same industry. And so people are definitely going to recognize that, I think, because especially in this hardware industry, very blue collar, people recognize that brand name and they realize when they see a quality product and we're going to be one step ahead of the competitor every time. Right. 
And it is, it is funny. We, we talk to so many painters when we're testing this product and almost every single one of them has been a, a painter for 20 years. And they say, you know, have you thought of this product? Have you thought about doing this? Because I run into this problem every single day when I'm painting and nobody has come up with a solution that I can buy in a store. And they come out and they show us this thing that they've uh, duct taped together and, and made themselves in their garage and say, I use this every day. And if you could make a product that's just like this, I think you'd sell a million of them. So they, uh, it's, it's great talking to people because we would never know that problems in the industry existed like that without actually going and talking to our customers. It's hard to understate that knowledge of your, the feedback from your customers, the understanding of that industry. It's very hard to, to state that enough. You know, you got that's a big, important thing to know. Yeah. Super valuable. Definitely. Well, the, um, you mentioned retailers, um, because it's something that we're currently thinking about as well, because we we're only selling through our online store, but we see the benefits of going to retail as well. Um, what are some of the, let's say, tips and strategies that you guys used um, to, let's say, make a successful pitch um, to a retailer with your product? Really just being open and... Uh and honest about where we're at, where we would like to be and what our product is. Um, Are you guys mainly a uh, business to consumer right now with, with the apparel? We're only business completely. Consumer, yeah. Oh, okay. So you guys, okay. you guys haven't tried going into uh, like local, you know, small uh, clothes shops or, or things like that and saying, Hey, what would you think about getting our product on your, on your shelves? To be honest, no, I think that's kind of been maybe one of our biggest mistakes because I think us and other people, I'm guessing, kind of overestimate e-com and underestimate retail. Yeah. And uh, I think that's when we started, we said, yeah, we, let's make the product, focus on that, then throw a few you know, uh, euros at Facebook ads and then everything is going to work itself out. But in theory, it's not like exactly the way that it happens. Um, so I think the next step would be to uh, kind of approach uh, a little bit, maybe small shops around Amsterdam. Or, um, but we need to uh, again research and kind of investigate what what their requirements would be for, for for an apparel product. Do they need minimum quantities? Do they need delivery times uh, and stuff like that? But it's definitely one of the things that we'll be tackling next. When you go to retailer, do you, do you just go into the store or? And how do you go? How do you reach the decision maker, basically? Because yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's probably a clerk or somebody who is working there, who's uh, working like day to day in the shop, but probably doesn't have the decision making power or the interest to uh, talk about you to have their to have a new product added to their line. How do you approach that? Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly right. And at the beginning, that is what we did. Dave and I would go out every weekend and we'd have a list of stores that we thought would be interested in the product. And we'd just go by, one by one and we'd go in the store, we'd go up to the counter and say, uh, hey, you know, we would like to speak to a manager about getting a new product on your store shelves. And sometimes the manager would be there and willing to talk to us. And sometimes the manager would be there and wouldn't be willing to talk to us. And sometimes uh, they would say, give us, you know, here's his number, give him a call back and, uh, you know, maybe we'll set up a time. But it was 
it was really just going into the stores at, at first and and talking to people and, and hey, we got this product. Be great for your store. Would you consider putting it on your shelves? Uh, you're right. The uh, do you have a minimum order quantity? How does it work? And with bigger stores like in stores, they said, well, you're going to have to go through and we've got a process. And that was that was really difficult. So we've really found our niche in the smaller independently owned stores. We find those and we go into those now and the owners are able to make uh, the decisions of what goes on. And obviously it's difficult to go into even 10 stores in one day. It's, it's really hard. It's a lot of time. So what we've kind of started doing is making phone calls before we go in and saying, hey, we're a couple young entrepreneurs. We've got this new product. We think it'd be great for your store, and we'd like to talk to you about what it would take to get it on your shelves. And people seem to be responding to that really well. Yeah, why don't you come in this day at this time, and we'll talk about it. Uh, and later today that we'll visit. Um, but that's just how we're approaching it. It's, it's not something that we're getting 100 or 200 time we're we're taking it one by one by one and you know surely we're building up relationships with these people and uh you know recurring sales hopefully and just a, a the stores that have uh have customers already which is something important would you say calling them up is is a better approach than kind of dropping an email i would say definitely We've had more success talking to people on the phone. Uh, the best, the best success we've had is is going in and actually talking to people face. But close second, talking to people on the phone, and then say contacting people on social media. That's something that we've kind of found recently has been actually working really well. Contacting, messaging, messaging them on Facebook, and LinkedIn, people respond on those platforms lately. And then email, it just seems like email is about 20 and you might get two or three responses. You guys are at right now, I would say um, keeping it possible and dealing with these people is the best thing. Because um, you guys talked a little bit about that red tape, like quantity, minimum quantity orders and all this other stuff. Keep it simple. And I would say how you guys want to start is is number one, gather intel, gather as much intelligence as you can. Uh, so one of the things we did was we just said, where could, what, where could this even be sold? And we said, okay, it could be sold at Lowe's, Home Depot, Sherwin-Williams, Ace Hardware, Benjamin Moore, Menards. Um, so those were like the main ones. So we went through all those. And then we also said, hey, these can also be sold at the local shop, uh, local small hardware shops as well. So we went and we got a, a big sample size. So we went to, you know, 20 wins, a couple of Menards, uh, 15 Home Depots, 15 Lowe's, uh, Ace Hardware's, Moore's, all that stuff. And we got feedback about how the process works. And you can't stop at one. You want to go to like maybe 10. I don't know if you guys have chains like we do here, but a lot of them are, are big chains. And the feedback was at Lowe's, Home Depot and Sherwin-Williams, you have to go through corporate. So that means that 
we have to go to corporate Sherwin-Williams and somehow get a meeting there. And then our product would be distributed in all their stores, which that's kind of not, they have over 4,000 stores. So that's not really what we wanted to do. They're big fish and we're, we're little <clears throat> fish right now. So what we found was that for us, Benjamin and Menards doesn't even do that. So we threw them out. Um, so Lowe's, Home Depot, and uh, Lowe's, Home Depot, and Sherwin, all corporate. You got to go through corporate. That's so much red tape. That's not simple for us right now. We don't want to get business insurance and uh, do all this document compliance and do these. We, we get fined if, if this order of 5,000 doesn't come on time. We, we don't want to deal with that right now. However, if, if you guys are listening, if Sherwin is listening in Home Depot, we would love to be in your stores. <laughs> 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 I'm sure I'm sure he's a regular listener to the show. <laughs> the CEO is it's our main audience, the, the top guys in the, the chain. <laughs> so what we found is that Benjamin Moore and Ace Hardware's the so owners will own anywhere from about one to the largest Benjamin Moore we ran into is 35. Uh, they own 35 stores. So basically what you can do is you go in and you figure out what works. And we figured out, hey, Benjamin Moore, where working? Because we're talking to these owners saying that, yeah, I own eight and we're to decide however many we want to get in. And so it worked for us. And what we ended up facing Benjamin Moore where and also, when you talk with a lot of people in the industry, you kind of learn how it, how it works a little bit. So there are also distributors that distribute to these stores. So, for example, we can't get because we would have to go through corporate, and that would be a long, long process. But there are distributors that sell to all the Sherwins. So if we got in as a SKU product with them, we could then distribute to Sherwins. So we figured from all this research, it took like eight months of us just going out talking to people. We figured out that Ace Hardware's, Benjamin Moore's are what we want to target, even some online distributors. Yeah. And then talk to these distributors uh, that distribute to Sherwin, Lowe's, Home Depot, uh, because they're already approved vendors with them. They've already went through all the red tape so let's use them right. until we get big enough where we can now go through the red tape. Right. So that's kind of what we did. It took a while, but you just got to figure out if you want to be retail, figure out the possibilities of where could this product be sold and just go talk to people, go talk to as many people as possible and just process works for each store, uh, each chain of stores. And you'll figure out so much. I mean, there were some corporate owned and then almost all of them that we went to were owned by franchise they were franchised so you'll learn a lot out there man i think you guys could really be successful with those uh you know hometown small uh you know clothing stores and just general knickknack types of things because today it seems like everybody wants something that's unique the big time chain store not a sears and and walmart you can buy the same shirt in Walmart in Ohio and Tennessee, California. You can buy the exact same thing. But if you got to get in a few stores, you can only buy products. That's going to be something that's unique. And I really think it's going to draw people to, uh, 
you know, to your product. Yeah, no, that's very, very good points, guys. I think we'll be kind of putting it on uh, top of the to-do list and it's definitely something we've been putting on. For some reason, I don't know, maybe like, we'll be shy to just go and talk to people. Um, but I think it's, it's in that sense, it's going to be great to get out of the comfort zone and, and just talk to people, like you said. You guys, it's like Microsoft. Sorry, you cut off for a second. Uh, do you guys use like spreadsheets like Microsoft? Or Google, Google Sheets, like Excel, like spreadsheets. Yeah, we do. Yeah, that's like it's just like a numbers game, honestly. Like, just make a huge list of stores. Make sure you keep bring a notebook with you and keep a lot of notes. But Excel spreadsheets are fantastic. I mean, we got a sheet right now with our customer list. It's got like ten tabs at the bottom. We got like Ace Hardware and our inventory list and all this kind of stuff. But when talking to retailers, it's just a numbers game. Just talk to as many as you can yeah. and, and keep notes on it. Because once we talked about, you know, seeds take a while to come to fruition. So you might talk with 15 people the year before that, that hey, I'm really booked up financially. And all of a sudden you contact them next year because you got your notes all there. Hey, contact this person. And then it's a great fit. So just the numbers game, just the numbers game. So just talk a lot of people and you're going to close you're, even even if you close five percent of people you know you talk to 100 people then you're you're closing five stores so i mean it's pretty nice yeah. but you gotta it's a lot of time to talk to 100 people of course yeah and yeah, it's, but, it's also a good uh exercise at sales right so just go talk to people tell, tell the story about the brand show the product i think it's also going to be beneficial in the long run as a skill totally I definitely agree. And do you do follow up as well with those people? Because as you said, it sometimes it takes a long time to like have a deal or to 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 be at the right place for both of you. Um, so if somebody says no, how do you touch back? To, like, uh, when do you touch back with them and uh, start a conversation over again? Oh yeah, I mean, a lot of different answers, and it's very rare. No, but times people make excuses and, and say, and they could be totally legitimate excuses. They could say, well, it's the right time of year, or hey, we just got a big uh, shipment of new products in and we're just just busy right now. Or sometimes they say, well, you're going to have to do and this guy approval first. And so unless we get a flat out no, we end up usually coming back to them in the next two, three, four weeks. And just saying, sending them an email or giving them a call and saying, hey, we're uh, just following up with you, seeing if uh, anything is has changed, you know, just making sure things are going well and see if you'd be interested in, in testing out the product now. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, offering uh, expensive, your guys, but for us, it's pretty nice because it's offering a lot of time. Um, I'll just say, hey, Sample painters, let me know what you think. I'll follow up. Um, you know, most of the time, especially with the hardware industry, it fluctuates where people are really busy and they're kind of tied up with all their ski products. Um, but a lot of it too is finding the right personality. So we needed to find people that were willing to take a chance and try a new product. And the good thing is, the paint industry. 
thing, the new product, people are like, whoa, yeah, I want to try this. So that was kind of cool. So yeah, there were some owners that were like, heck yeah, let's try a new product. And like, oh, I've been doing this for years. This is how I do it. I don't, I'm not adding anything to my shelf and that's fine. Um, but yeah, following up with people, it just kind of depends on what excuse they're making. And a lot of times it would be, I'm busy this time of year financially. So then you ask, well, busy financially i'll follow up with you and usually around october is when they're closing out the year busy so i think we're going to follow up a lot of people in november uh like in a week or so probably like we'll give them this this first week in november to get their bearings and then we'll be hounding them again that's right you guys mentioned social media is a kind of a long-term strategy can you take us through what you're currently doing like what platforms are you attacking what type of content are you creating how how's that strategy for let's say long term yeah so there's social media is huge there's so many avenues you can go down and and things you can try and you know social media it everybody it does work you just have to figure out what works for you and that's the hardest part for us is figure how we can connect with people who would be interested in our product and that is yeah we can reach a lot with a lot of different ads how do we determine what is actually working and not working because we could put out an ad and reach maybe you know thousand or two thousand people with fifty dollars and at zero no at zero interested or did we get clicks because we didn't reach a large enough audience these are things we just don't know yet and i think that the you know we can keep trying to throw out the line and and seeing what comes back we're kind of at the point right now where we think it might be valuable for us to go back on our social media and focus right now on on the stores and maybe in the future, amp up social media when we have the funds to hire somebody who knows what they're doing. It seems like such a big thing uh, to tackle. And I mean, people go to college to major in social media marketing these days. In four years, figuring out how to do it. And yeah. it's just something that we have not really mastered. And we could, I know we could spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to do something, and it could, we could just be spinning our wheels. Sometimes you got to go with the hot hand, and our hot hand is the stores. It's a, they, you know, stores for much larger quantities. So, not spending like business to consumer right now. We're, spending, if we get orders in a, in a day, I'm night packaging stuff up. It's just not worth it right now. We're just spread too thin. So then for us, it was more like, if we want to be good at social media, we need to go full bore. And the problem is we don't, we're not experts in that. So let's go full bore with the stores because that's what's at hand right now. And then once we get some funding, uh, well, not funding, once we get enough revenue coming in, then we'll just go full bore on media and pay somebody else to do it because we're just spread too thin trying to build customer. 
Yeah. You mentioned in the beginning that you're uh, looking into shipping to Canada and just internationally in general. How did you start looking into that? At what point were you feeling confident that you're ready to just go outside of the U.S.? Well, we uh, we formed a relationship with a, a a guy in Canada, really good guy, Airdrie Airdrie Paint and Decor. So if you're in Canada listening to listening to this, go to Calgary in Alberta, right? And uh, it's a good place. Yeah, we uh, we made a contact with uh, a really cool guy up there, and uh, he has reach in. I think it's over a hundred stores up yeah, in Canada. A lot of Benjamin Moore stores, I think. And he was there. he was really interested in the product. He liked it right away and thought he could do well. And uh, we just really found a good fit with him. And we we wanted to make it work no matter what. We knew that you know Canada was going to be something that was a little bit more difficult, but we just felt like uh, that this specific relationship was a really good one. And uh, we wanted to uh, figure it out no matter what it took. So well, basically, we were forced to figure it out because he wanted to order 2,000 units. And so, you know, we, we, we had to figure it out because, you know, it was a big order. And he said, listen, guys, I you know, want to order this product and I really like it. And it was such a big order that we had to figure it out. I mean, there wasn't really another option. And luckily, Canada works well because it's right here in North America. Um, so the the shipping cost is a lot less than it would be overseas. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, did you did, did you ever go to any trade shows or conventions for like uh, businesses from that industry where you were, you had a stand or some sort of presence? We really haven't yet, but it's something that we are extremely interested in. Um, I don't know about where you guys are or, you know, how it is with the, uh, you know, the clothing industry. Um, but the retail shows around us, they cost upwards of like two to $5,000 just to get a small booth at these, uh, these big shows. And it's something that I think that we could really find some good success with. And we could probably connect with a lot of good people, but at this point, it's kind of cost prohibitive for us. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. A pretty similar thing in the apparel industry. It's quite expensive and involves traveling and all that around that. It's not just paying for the ticket and your presence there, but everything else that goes around and it takes you away from your business, especially when two of you are shipping shirts or your product. It's yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Dave, Shane, I think it's perfect time also to wrap it up. Um, so we're going a little bit long as well. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, thanks again for doing this second part. Thanks, guys. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it and found it valuable, we would really appreciate your support by liking, rating, subscribing to the Early Days podcast. This program is produced and hosted by Dulo, that's me and Julian. And as we mentioned in the very beginning, we make non-iron dresses from performance fabrics. If you want to learn more, head over to wearedulo.com, that's W-E-A-R-D-U-L-O.com and take a look at our products, our story and the journey of how we're building the business. Until next time.
拜拜。